let's ask the Lord's blessing on this. Dear Lord, we're grateful for your work. We're grateful for our time in it. We're grateful for our kids who are spending time on those sorts of things upstairs. We'd ask that they became something. Lord, uh, bless your church. In your son's name, amen. We're in Job. Job is one of my favorite books. Um, mostly because I don't get much out of it. <laughs> well, mostly because I, I feel the weight of not getting much out of it for many, many chapters of it because you know that Job's friends are wrong. And then you kind of suspect that Job is wrong. Everybody's wrong. And it all sounds like such good advice, but it's wrong. You know that because you, you've read the end before. And until you get to Elihu. And Elihu, between chapters uh, 32 through 35, is it? 37? 37. Is Elihu speaking. And Elihu is just that sort of person you like to run into. He's on top of the game. He's on top of Job's friends and he's top on top of Job and when God speaks after chapter 37 pretty much I agree with Elihu so in chapter 35 that's what we're looking at that those were uh, 15 verses there at the top of the right hand side are uh, that chapter of Job and Elihu is in the middle of part of his argument and as I was reading it there was elements of conversations I had had during the last few weeks. And it's also not just current, it's in, in all of our lives all the time. And Elihu said, do you think this to be just? Do you say, it's my right before God that you ask, what advantage have I? How am I better off than if I had sinned? I will answer you and your friends with you and the horse you rode in on. Well, that's not it in there. I will answer you and your friends with you. Look at the heavens and see, and behold the clouds which are higher than you. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if, you tr if your transgressions are multiplied, what, can you, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? And what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself, and your righteousness a son of man. We sometimes think that the primary issue is good and evil. Because God obviously has talked about it. The fall involved it. Your life is one of comparing those arenas of your life, confessing the bad, pursuing the good. And so it's very easy to start to think that this is what God is mining out of humanity. He's punishing the wicked and he is gaining this, you know, rewarding the righteous. And that his benefit is to get that righteousness. Elihu 
suggest that maybe we might not be entirely correct in that. God is not benefited by your righteousness at all. He's not hurt by your wickedness. He might not like it. That's certain he doesn't like it. But your wickedness can't do anything to him. And your righteousness doesn't add anything to him. But we're very easily moved to a, you heard me say in other situations, an inventory model of these two things. How much of this do I have? We like to weigh our lives in the balance. I was this bad, but I was this good. And God looks at the balance. And since he is kind of the beneficiary or the, or the loser in this, that's how we view ourselves. Job's friends are viewing him that way. This must be the case. Job is viewing himself that way. Well, if it's not, if it's not, if, if righteousness and wickedness are collaterals, they're effects, or they are causes of something in you, your wickedness concerns a man like yourself. And your righteousness, the son of man. This is what it's all about. You are... Something's happening in you regarding it. All your wickedness and all your righteousness have good effects horizontally and have negative effects horizontally. Now, what do you do about it? Now, what do you do? What do you say about it? There's something that God does use as a dipstick. We're kind of a big one. And he not only uses it as a dipstick, I have it here on the left-hand side, a little bit ways down, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You ever stop to think that what cases we make, what positions we take. We are really pulling out the dipstick out of our soul and saying, this is what I think. When Job does not like his friend's accusation, his friends are pulling their dipstick out and saying, this is what we think you did. God wouldn't hurt you this much unless you had done something wrong. And Job's saying, there ain't no way, waving his dipstick around. And, and it's not a... Um, it's something we recognize about Job. There's no question there. But I want you to be thinking in terms of the voice you give your righteousness and the voice you give your unrighteousness because it helps you start to figure out whether your righteousness is pharisaical or is uh, not in the joy of the Lord. You might be really restrained individual, not doing anything bad in your life and not be doing any of your good in a good way. And your voice about it describes it. What happens to Job is when he was a righteous man. There's no question about it. God is actually bragging about Job to Satan. I mean, has that happened in your life ever? Satan and God even talking about you. Let's say they did. Would God be, have you noticed some of that? Moscow, Idaho? What a, what a fine, remarkable, 
And you can see Satan's eyes narrowing. He says, I'll deal with that. We don't even have that benefit. We know he was good. But when he was jostled, a complexity of his goodness started to become evident. Because at the end of the book, God chews Job out. And Job repents. His friends were wrong, but Job was wrong too. He's entered the language as the patience of Job. Well, okay, yeah, he sat there and mourned and didn't curse God. A lot of good qualities in Job. But Elihu spots something. And it comes from thinking, I've paid off. I should be. I was this good in front of God. God should be paying me off with the right kind of reward for being that good. I wasn't that bad. God is not punishing me for badness. Because, verse 9, because of the multitude of oppressions, people cry out. They call for help because of the arm of the mighty. Listen to, listen to this. But none says, Where is God my maker, who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the air? There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. It's a very subtle distinction. Yes, everybody, the old adage, there are no atheists in foxholes. Everybody under a bad situation. Man, the prayers become for Aunt Betty who's got cancer. Aunt Betty didn't have cancer. We didn't think about Aunt Betty. Now Aunt Betty has cancer. We're praying for her. Or you have cancer. And it, it focuses the mind wonderfully. And that's where people lose their faith because they pray the prayer. They pray the prayer. The problem was their goodness and their evil is a, a tidy good citizenship award for this earth and for your life. You were able to live comfortably because you were a good person. You paid your bills. You were nice to the needy. You didn't run off with the neighbor's wife, good for you. And you think you tidied it up. And you almost think that when oppression happens, God owes you something. What if you, because this is what Job did. Bad things are happening to me. What's the difference if I had been bad? That's the first couple of verses there. What's the benefit of being good? If you're thinking that way, you're thinking incorrectly. Elihu is noticing, because of the multiple repressions, people do cry out. It's not wrong to pray to God when you're under a difficulty. He says, but nobody says in that prayer, where is God my maker, who? And then they recognize a depth of God's goodness to them. That's how they define him. It becomes very quickly accusational. We offered the goodness, he should have healed Aunt Betty. 
Where is God my maker who gives songs in the night? Now the good things. He says, if they cry out this way, verse 12, he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. That's how that's defined. What Job has done, questioning the righteousness of God, is because Job's preparation for this moment wasn't built on him thanking God, living in the good that God had given him. He was always a little nervous. You can go back to the first chapter of Job and look, his kids used to party and he used to offer sacrifices the next day just in case they had blasphemed God while they were three sheets to the wind. He was concerned that righteous things were met. This is a, this is a wrong thing. This is an evil thing. This is a pattern you could very easily, the church could let you get here very quickly. Verse 13, it tells you in red, Surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. So there. How much less when you say that you do not see him, that the case is before him, and you're waiting for him. The, the conceit, when you think you have paid the price of admittance to the courts of God, you become a difficult character for God that God doesn't actually like much. This kind of assumptive, if that's a word, good answer from God. It's like somebody who paid all of his graft and he knows he should just be able to walk into the mayor's office and dictate what he wants. Well, I've paid all my graft. I've given you all the money that I think you should have and you should just pay out for me. Well, that shows that we actually don't have a relationship with God that's the relationship that God wants to have with you. What was I supposed to be recognizing? That he gives me songs in the night. That he teaches us wisdom. Odd things to be listed. You know, aren't you supposed to be... You know, isn't this a... You know, this smells of the mercantile, you know, bartered exchange. Unless you had been defining your God by the beauty in your life and the philosophy in your life. That's who, when you say, where is my God? Where is God my maker? Who I'm going to define this way. Remember, Job is written, this is patriarchal period. Time of Jacob and Esau, maybe a little later than that. This is before Egypt. This is before Yahweh. It's a very smart piece. It says, you know, our God should be defined by beauty and by wisdom. And you should have recognized in your life what had come to you in that beauty and what had come to you in that wisdom. And how much more? I mean, these are the things, if you look at the beasts, they can be beautiful, but they don't know beauty from a hole in the ground. Some of them don't even see in color. I don't know if any of them see in color. 
And he had really colorful things like plumes and the like. We see it. Our God has given us beauty. Our God has given us music. This is who my God is, so that when I pray to God about the oppression I am under, the difficulty I'm going through, I had better be defining him as this wonderful agent in my life, because that has had to been built by something. Otherwise, it's an empty cry. Otherwise, I'm just trying to push forward my, my unburied one talent. Here it is, Lord, here it is back. Here is, and Elihu says, you know, your good deeds did nothing for God. Your bad deeds didn't harm him. Your good deeds didn't profit him. But that's what we think we've done. We push that goodness forward. Well, I go to church pretty faithfully. I'd say I'm there more often than most of the people are there. Or I'm involved in whatever the Christian things are. We're supposed to be involved and recognizing the goodness of our God, not the righteous goodness of our God, but the goodness of our God in other categories. It ends the chapter, it says, and now because his anger does not punish, and he does not greatly heed transgression, Job opens his mouth in empty talk. He multiplies words without knowledge. How quickly when it's a mercantile exchange, when you have paid the graft, you expect something from God, you pushed it forward, he didn't respond, now you've got to punish God. You have to complain about him. He opens his mouth in empty talk. That's what you do. That's what many agnostic atheist kids and Christian families say. Well, I prayed and nothing happened. I've been, I've been a good kid, going to church. Then I prayed and, and Betty died. And multiply words without knowledge. Because your anger does not punish him. But if we build our minds differently, This passage out of Second First Timothy four one on the side here. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by giving heed to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, through the pretensions of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and enjoin abstinence from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for then it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. I want to tell you this morning, say practically, you saying grace over your meal, as a family gathers round the table, and father bows his head, and the kids fold their pudgy little hands, and he says, rub, dub, dub, thanks for the grub, yea, God. And, oh, maybe you pray a little more formally than that. It's almost the most important prayer. Your, he has given you, he has given you that wife. He's given you marriage. 
He's given you food. He's given you art. He's given you philosophy. He has made you different than the beasts. And all you want to turn it into is the cold exchange of goods and services. Everything is to be accepted. Everything with thanksgiving. It's making you a different kind of person. You are going to go through hard times. Someday, Leslie and I, I don't know which one it's going to be, it's going to be sitting by the bed of the other while they die. It's going to happen. Life and death and misery and toothaches and disease happen. <coughs> There's going to be some of you who get to go through the circumstance where everybody you know and love rejects you. Where are you going to be? What's your prayer going to be like? How are you going to, how are you going to speak to your God? Is your God going to fail you? And you're going to judge him because you were carrying your little, in your little mitts, your good deeds. Or are you going to walk up to the God that you remember for giving you your wife, giving you your children, giving you your art, giving you your thinking, giving you your food. You received it all with thanksgiving. So he said, Lord, where are you, the one who has given me all these things? Is that where your mind's going to be? That's where your mind's supposed to be. Otherwise, it's empty talk. Otherwise, God doesn't listen to you. For years, somebody was talking to me about it uh, last week at some point. On learning certain things or getting through certain things in life. And I'm a reasonably healthy guy, you know, normal pains, don't get sick very often at all. I haven't thrown up in probably a couple decades. I mean, I just don't get that sick. And, you know, I'm deteriorating, as Glenda would be happy to tell you, I'm deteriorating at the normal rate. But uh, we've paid our bills and we have a nice house and, and uh, things are pretty good. Um, and consequently, I was realizing I wasn't praying <laughs> because there wasn't anything to ask the Lord for. You know, the bills were paid and I was healthy. And kind of the people I knew closer were healthy. And I know this was decades ago. I finally uh, realized, you know, even kind of the converse of having nothing to pray for in emergency is you have a lot to pray for at Thanksgiving. You have a lot to say to God. And the healthy part of it is not merely you can always say thanks to your grandma when she gives you the socks at Christmas. These are things like philosophy and sex. Which is a really good idea. God invented this stuff. It gave you the processing units in your head that you could start to put together an idea, or a song, or a dinner. We were at uh, Fred Lanier Banks' for dinner last night, and Lanier is, you know, she's good at this. 
And it was something that pushed the envelope for Evan. We'll just say that. But it was good. It was good. But it, it looked really good. You know, it was a kind of a chipotle uh, pork stew with small little potatoes and then a fan of avocado on the top, which I don't see what that was for. But uh, women, food, and a nice little you know, salad with orange and something. And then a centerpiece that had kale in it. Not to eat, just the centerpiece. And a skull in the centerpiece, looking at me. It wasn't a human skull, it was a fox's skull, but it was a skull. All those good things, good wine, good company, good food, beautiful food. This is your life right now. This is the life you guys walk out the door to. You live in America. Most of you are white. Hey, check. Almost all of you. I have a daughter-in-law and some half-Japanese back there. Okay? You got the privileges. You got the card. You can go to Winco. You can join Costco. You are overwhelmed with goodness. Just think about this afternoon. Think about your ability to make these funny little noises with your lips that other people understand. And everyone had to learn how to do it, and have everyone had to learn how to understand it. And they not only have that done in English, they also can do that in Spanish, and French, and German, and Singalese, and whatever else you might be speaking. They have an entirely different way of making noises. And the people in that country know those noises. You should be falling to your knees. This is just amazing. What a world. Food. What a world. So why did God make us to need food? You're just an awful human being, aren't you? Yeah, well, I don't see why he can't just make us, you know, like make cell division and turn into two people. No sex, no marriage, no relationship, no food. Your mother's basement is the place for you to live. First Psalm 92. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to thy name, O Most High, to declare thy steadfast love in the morning and thy faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For thou, O Lord, hast made me glad by thy work, at thy works of thy hands I sing for joy. How great are thy works, O Lord! Thy thoughts are very deep. The dull man cannot know. The stupid cannot understand this. Yes, see where the psalmist is going? I'm, I'm thinking about what he has done. And I'm grateful that I have the capability to think about what he has done. And there's nothing you could do but sing his greatness. And I can remember being embarrassed. I've told you this before. My dad kept hymnals under the front seat of the car. Pick up a hitchhiker. 
and then proceed to pull out hymns. And we would have to sing the hymns, and I was so embarrassed. And I knew the hymns and all the Charles Wesley stuff. You know. We'd sing them, with, sing them with gusto, but I remember finally realizing that this is actually really good poetry. This is really good music about a really good God who really has done many good things. And so at some point it shifted from Evan being embarrassed about his dad wanting to sing hymns in the car to me going across the street from the barracks in the Navy to a phone booth to sing hymns by myself in the phone booth. Not because I wanted to be by myself, but phone booths are great for hearing yourself. You just Oh, the shower is also good. Once you begin to not be a dull man anymore, once you get to be not stupid anymore, you know that you have a God who's there to be given thanks for. Most of it. You don't wake up every morning, you might say, well, some things hurt, and I, I'm getting on in years, and my hip. But even Paul, who had a long-term, pernicious, you know, pain that bothered him of some sort, we don't know what it was. At least he petitioned God for it, but he's still saying, rejoice in the Lord. You've got a lot. And you're going to be able to, even when you go through a hard time, to pray prayers that are appropriate to that message, where you're not just shoving your little pile of good deeds at God, you're shoving your understanding of who he is. He is trusted by you. He is believed by you. You know his righteousness. You know his goodness because you've been busy thanking. Verse 7, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they're doomed to destruction forever. But thou, O Lord, art on high forever. For lo, thy enemies, O Lord, for lo, thy enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But thou hast exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. Thou hast poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. It means to sound like Conan. What's it? To defeat my enemies, to drive them before me, and to hear the lamentations of their women. That's what David sounded like. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bring forth fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. This is the promise for you. You will not be rejected in your prayers when you pray on the heels of a thankful life. Because you will know who your God is. You will know how to address him. You will not be saying, you owe me. And then being mad at him and being unable to punish him. When, and this is applies again to your life with your wife, this applies to your philosophy, this applies to your art, this applies to your food, it applies to your military victories. These are all greats. 
These are goods. If you're a military man, you go, okay, yes, we won. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of the Lord. Remind yourself of this, that these goods that you are recognizing in your God, you want them somehow, whatever you conceive of the courts of the Lord to be. I'm not saying it's the sanctuary of all souls Christian church. Matter of fact, probably isn't. But the courts of the Lord are something. The house of the Lord is something. Where you know you are walking to where he has made his name to dwell. Because that is what's going to keep you, because look at the what it promises you. In old age, you're going to still be full of sap and green. You'll still be bringing forth fruit. So well, this is what I want you to take away. Don't be satisfied with mere goodness. Be satisfied with knowing you're God. Be satisfied with knowing all the good that doesn't have to do with goodness. Doing the right thing. Because you want to be in your old age still productive and a real the beneficiary of God, the one who God answers the prayers of. Remember, you don't want to be the empty cry, the empty talk, the rejected, someone accusing God of not paying his debts. It builds a confidence when you thank God. Thessalonians says, Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is the will of God in all circumstances. Give thanks in all circumstances. I can't tell you it enough. Thanksgiving, if you're the kind of woman that, uh, oh, I don't know, rhymes with bitch. Oh, did I actually say it? Thanking God will help fix you. you. Begin to realize that life is not one long complaint. And everyone else don't, doesn't live for you to have a, you know, a reporting mechanism on. You're going to be thanking God. You're going to be building a better view of your God. If you're just an awful male, awful guy who's always grumping around, thank God. Spend some time thanking Him. God's reputation to you is benefited. God's reputation to others is benefited. We spend all of our time trying to argue people out of a viewpoint they gained by not recognizing God's good gifts. What are you, off-quoted Romans 1, because they did not honor God or give him thanks, he gave them up to the futility of their minds. And this is what it is. And it can be happening to Christians. It's not just mere people who don't thank God and end up atheists on a state university campus. Them and Christians who have turned their relationship with God is that I meet the rules, that I do the rules you owe me. We want to know our God and know the wonderful thing and show that the Lord is upright, verse 15. He is my rock. And there is no unrighteousness in him. That's the confidence you walk away with. He would never. 
he would never. I, I get into theological arguments occasionally. It's been known to happen. And one of the ones that we talk about is in the morality of God. Could God do evil? Well, some people feel the only way they feel safe is to say God cannot do evil. I, I don't hold that position. I believe God can. Now you say, God could do evil? Yeah, but he wouldn't. There's a difference. We want to be protected by a kind of a fiat barrier. God could not go past the force field of doing bad something. I say, oh, he's, well, he's a moral agent. He could choose to do that which is wrong, but he won't. Do you know him? He wouldn't do this. He wouldn't do evil. There is no unrighteousness in him. Well, how do I prepare that mind? The confidence you have is to find all the things besides your righteousness for you to rejoice in and be thankful and to register that thanks with him. Let's thank him now. Dear Lord God, we're grateful. We also thank you for this Lord's Supper coming up, Lord, and we'd ask you to also bless us as we ponder the word. In your son's name, amen.